Um, you've kind of gotten a preview, I think, already. Some of the things that were said this morning were uh, talking about the big picture. And so as we continue moving forward in this story, we find out we get to a very serious kind of topic called the fall, where, you know, sin is dealt with and, and humanity and those kind of things. And so I thought this morning I would set the stage for this discussion of the fall with this video. I was going over the side. <laughs> I felt really bad for this guy in this costume. <laughs> Jesus' name, everybody. We're good. It's all good. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Such a good pastor. Don't let the fall stop you from what you're saying. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. We were talking about that this morning in the foyer. Liz and I had seen that video, and I said, there have been moments at Ashworth in the end of a service. I'm praying. You close your eyes, and you really become very unaware of where that lip is. That ledge is right there. So, you know, falling, funny when it happens to somebody else, right? I do have to tell you, I was trying to find videos that led us to believe that they didn't get seriously injured. That was very hard to find. There's plenty of videos where you walk away going, I think that person has a concussion. But you know, it's funny to see it happen to somebody else. Not so funny when it happens to us, especially when somebody's got a video camera on us. But we're talking about the fall, not necessarily that kind of fall today. But I thought that would be fun to, to get us started. <clears throat> we last week started with this idea of the big picture, where we looked at the very beginning. And if you were here last week, or if you caught it online, the very first words of the story that we're diving into are, in the beginning, God created. And we started to look at that story, how this story is unfolding. It's not just this collection of individual stories put together, but God has been crafting from the very beginning this incredible story that started here and even before here, and we're going to unfold this over the coming weeks. And we saw how last week that the most important part of this message, this passage, isn't for us to say, well, how did God do it? 
or what way did God do it? That's not really what the writer of Genesis is here trying to communicate. The most important thing that we were to see from Genesis 1 and 2 is who. Who was the subject? And it was God. It was God's intention to create. And why did he create? Because he created us for desire of relationship. And he brought order to the chaos. And even to this day, God continues to create and sustain it all by his creating order. And that's what we looked at last week. And we saw that this God who was and is, he's a personal God. And he desires relationship with us. And that's amazing that we, as we think about, as we read the creation story, we see repeated as God created. He says, you know what? I created this and it was good. And I created this and it was good. And then he creates humanity. And in Genesis 1.31, we read this, God saw all that he made and it was very good. It was very good. Now, I don't know about you, but as Amy was talking this morning, as we, even we sing that song, I Speak Jesus, it's a reminder of the world we live in, isn't it? Depression, anxiety, shadows, darkness, difficulty, brokenness. I mean, we don't have to look far to, to look at a verse like this and go, hmm, God saw, this is what God saw was very good. This is what God created that was very good. Where's the disconnect? Where is the difficulty here? Because even last night as I was putting my slides together and I thought, let's just remind ourselves, not that we need it, but what the world is like. And I just went to a few web news websites, and so I pulled up this one. In the Ukraine war, mass exhumations have been found in a forest gravesite. Brutality. Dif I mean, just the, this to me is one of the most horrific things I think I can think of. People just brutally being murdered. They even say they found children in this grave. Or even this, last night, Puerto Rico is facing a hurricane and flooding. You guys know that? That's like today. They're bracing for this. Or even recently, the next story, Pakistan has experienced incredible flooding and 3.4 million children in Pakistan need immediate life-saving support. Terrible. Or even this one, the Southern Baptist Convention currently being investigated by the Department of Justice because of their mishandling of sexual abuse cases. And as much as we'd like to say the church and Christians, we're, we're the safe place. Evidently, we're not. Okay. Evidently, we're not. And we're part of this issue. And I mean, nobody can handle the grief of this next story. Iowa State defeats the Iowa Hawkeyes 10 to 7. I mean, talk about just broken world and hardship and pain, right? But the queen. <laughs> but the queen, exactly. You know, looking at these headlines, anybody else just say, thanks for the big pick-me-up, Brent. Man, just really appreciate it. But we want to be a place of authenticity. We want to be a place that acknowledges the reality of the world we live in. And we could go on with story after story highlighting the brokenness, highlighting the evil that exists in this world. Where did this go wrong? What happened from God's very good creation to lead us to this place today where we would say, things aren't that good. Things aren't that good. And as much as we would love to look at humanity and think, but we're on the course, humanity is constantly getting better. We continue to see things that remind us, no, we're not, not really. 
as enlightened as we may be, as educated as we may be, as informed as we may be, it's not helping us get there. So what went so horribly wrong to mess up God's very good creation? Well, what I want to do is we're just going to continue in this story. We're going to figure this out. What happened? In Genesis 2, we find that God created Adam. And Adam has life and he has purpose. And he has a relationship with his creator. It's this beautiful picture. He's tending the garden, uh, the creation. And we're told that he names the animals. But when he looks at Adam, God sees that something's not right, and Adam needs someone. He's alone. And in all creation, there was not a suitable helper for Adam, so God creates one, Eve. And uh, together, they exist in this beautiful place in utopia, in perfection, as husband and wife. And they have run of the place. They have run of the place. Life is good. The only stipulation, the only rule, the only requirement is that there's one tree And this is, I don't know, you look at this story and you kind of go, this is so weird. There's all this stuff and God says, there's one tree you can't eat of. And he says, you can eat anything else but this one. And Genesis calls it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And for a while, we know they listened. We don't know how long, but we know for a while they listened. And in chapter two, Genesis chapter two, it ends with this passage here. It says, and Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Well, amen to that. (laughs) You know, sounds like a pretty good place if you like to be naked and have no shame. Things were good. Adam and Eve, there was an innocence there. No guilt, no shame. But then the story begins to take a turn. We come to Genesis chapter 3, and let's pick up the story there. We're going to read the first 13 verses of Genesis 3. Listen to this. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. Okay, let's just stop right here. Where'd the serpent come from? We don't know. What's the serpent doing in the garden? We don't know. Why is the serpent going to do what he does? We don't know. There's so many questions around this. So it just exists in the, in the nuance and the questions. It's okay. But he was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat from fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, And also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was evidently there just sitting around listening to the talking snake too, and gave it to him, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man said, uh, excuse me, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to them, called to the man, where are you? Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, you got to love this response. It's the woman's fault. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. 
Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and so I ate. Man, here it is. One act of disobedience and paradise was lost. Sin begins to just destroy everything that God had created. Everything that God had looked at and said was good was now marred. Now, you know, one, people, one question people often ask about this is, what was the fruit? We don't know. We don't know. Evidently, Apple thinks it's Apple because even on their logo, it's got the bite taken out of it, and I still buy their stuff. I don't know. You know? Why did God tell them not to eat that one? We don't know. What was it about this tree? Was there some special power? We, I don't think so. But there's something going on here, something that God is saying, I need you to trust me. I need you to just listen to me and follow me and believe that I've got the best for you. But somewhere along the way, God said, don't eat it. But the problem wasn't the fruit. The problem really wasn't even the tree. The problem was what led them to disobey. What was so compelling? You got to ask that question, right? What was so compelling for Adam and Eve that they're willing to trust this serpent, to listen to this serpent and to choose this disobedience over obedience. I think it's interesting what this passage reveals to us about sin. And I realize sin is a word we don't like to talk about. It's a word we wish didn't exist. But we look here and we see there is sin. Go back to the headlines. There is evil. And we have to deal with that. But what does this teach us about sin? And I think the first thing we see is that sin always changes our perspective of God. Sin always affects our perspective of God. Look at verse 5. It's very telling. They desired to be like God. Remember the context of the people who would have been reading Genesis 3 for the very first time. The people of ancient Israel, surrounded by nations that worshipped false gods and had their own narratives of God. They, they, they heard the stories of these mythological gods who were self-indulgent and prideful, the stories of gods that only took care of themselves that were sadistic towards people and humanity and were using them as their playthings to, to just have fun with. The stories of a God who would have done everything they could to keep from humanity from being like a God. These jealous gods would never have allowed a mortal to become like them. And yet in this story, that is exactly how the serpent portrays God to be untrustworthy, malicious, holding out on them, holding the best from them because he wants to keep all the really good things for himself. See how the serpent twisted that? See how the serpent took these two individuals that had this great, incredible relation. I mean, they're walking in the evening with God in the garden. That sounds pretty cool to me. And yet some way the serpent in what he said is able to convince them, you know what? God is not who you think he is. He's not for you like you think he is. He's holding out from, on you. And so what the serpent does is he's always, he's able to show them that misrepresent God. And that's what sin will do. It'll misrepresent God and his intentions toward us. Sin will look at you and say, God doesn't want you to have any fun. God doesn't want what's best for you. It always causes us to question God, to mistrust him. And, to, and we see here that that's what's taking place between Eve and the serpent. This mistrust is developing. And when we begin to get a little confused about God, when our perspective changes and we begin 
to misrepresent who God is, sin then becomes a little bit more appealing. We look at it, and Eve said it, right? It looked good. It was desirable to touch. Man, that looks like it's going to be juicy and beautiful to eat. It's pleasing to the eye. And isn't that how sin always is? Sin is appealing. It's drawing to us. If it was repulsive, sin wouldn't be much of a problem, would it? But what leads somebody to go into another country with an army and slaughter people and children and throw them in mass graves? You know what the appeal is? For power, for greed, for me, for my position. And it doesn't matter what I have to do to get it. That's what sin does. And sin, if it was repulsive, it'd be like, oh, that's gross. I don't want to touch it. But it's alluring, it's appealing, and it says, well, don't you want that power? Don't you want to be elevated? Don't you want that success? Don't you want to be happy? But when we look, when we give ourselves over, we're drawn in. And then we move toward it a little bit, and we think, that won't hurt. So we look closer. And before we know it, we're all in, both feet. Sin is done. But the problem is sin seldom looks on the outside like it really is on the inside. Do you think Adam and Eve really understood what was going to happen the moment they disobeyed God? I don't think so. I thought they thought, oh, no big deal. On the outside, it looked like a lot of fun. We see from what happens after they eat it, though, that their eyes are open. And we see this next thing is that sin has consequences. There are consequences to sin. One thing the serpent got right, you notice how he wasn't completely wrong about what he said. He didn't have to make up this huge grandiose story. No, it looked good. It was appealing, and I'm sure it tasted good. And he told him the truth. He says, when you eat it, your eyes will be open, and weren't their eyes open? What he didn't tell them was that by doing this, the guilt and the shame that they would experience, nothing was ever going to be the same again for Adam and Eve. They would no longer look at each other the same way. They would no longer interact with one another the same way. The struggle for control in their relationship would be real. Can I get an amen? <laughs> they'd never be able to look at or interact with creation the same way, and they'd never be able to look or interact with God the same way. Sin has these consequences, and they were right in the middle of experiencing them. For just these few things that we see about sin, there's one other thing too is that sin is serious. Sin is serious. And as I said, we don't even like the word. We want to call it, I made a mistake. We've downplayed this word, and we don't want to do it because we well, had a lapse in judgment or an oopsie, whatever. But mistakes are turning left when you should have turned right. Mistakes are misspelling a word in your presentation at work or not studying for that test. Mistakes we can usually correct, but sin is not just a mistake. Sin is more serious you remember last week how we talked about in God's creation that it's a picture of the temple? We don't, talk, we don't think about temples very much, but what does a temple represent in the Old Testament? It's the place where heaven and earth overlap. It's the place where the presence of God comes into this creation. And that first story of creation is all about a temple where heaven and earth are overlapping. I mean, God is coming into the garden to walk with the people, to walk with Adam and Eve. We see this heaven and earth right there together. But what happened, the seriousness of this sin is that this temple is destroyed. This temple is torn apart. And our unfettered access to God 
is gone. It's, it's not there. And when we look at the consequences here with Adam and Eve, we understand that this goes way beyond a mistake. It, way, it goes way beyond something we can just go, I'm sorry for. It wasn't a mistake, it was sin. But it also reveals one other thing about sin. And I think it's the root of the problem. It's the root of sin. You see, sin, as I said before, is not an education problem. We will never be able to educate our way out of sin. It's not a money problem. We could, we could take all the wealth in the world and distribute it equally to everybody, and I'm not saying we shouldn't lift others up. Don't miss what I'm hearing, what I'm saying. But if we could give everybody enough money, and they're still not going to fix the problem. Living in perfection. Adam and Eve had perfection. Everything was perfect. No death, no destruction, no thorns, no sin, no crying, no anything. And yet even then they weren't satisfied. They exhibit, they show to us the human condition, which is this desire for something else, to, to misrepresent God, to change our perspective of God, to want more, to want to be more, to not trust. And we find out that as much as we want, may want to look and say, my sin problem is not my problem, it really is. Because it's not an external problem that we're dealing with. It's an internal problem. It's a problem of the heart. And no amount of money, no amount of education, no amount of therapy actually can fix it. And I'm not saying don't go to therapy. I think therapy's good and helpful. I'm not saying don't take medications. Sometimes we need medications. But what I'm saying is that we've got to deal with the root problem because the problem of sin lies in the heart. Because even in perfection, we weren't satisfied. The great question of sin in our day, I think, is, is it nature or nurture that makes us how we are? In relation to sin, it's nature. It's nature. And we might be able to adjust our behavior for a time, but sin is an issue of the heart. And if we don't deal with the heart, we're not ever going to really deal with the issue. So from the passage here, that is pretty serious stuff, isn't it? Sin has incredible consequences so serious, it impacted everything. It impacted all of creation. But we've kind of touched this a little bit, but sin also reveals a lot of things about us. Because you look at how Adam and Eve respond to the temptation before them. The serpent, yeah, he, represent, he, he presents her with this idea. He misrepresents God. You know, just disobey. You'll be like God. But what does that reveal about humanity? It reveals within us this desire to be a God of our own lives, doesn't it? It reveals this desire for control, and that sounds appealing, doesn't it? I, who doesn't want to be in control? I do. We all do at some level. And Leave thought about it, and she thought, mm, you know, that sounds pretty nice. I want control. We don't want to surrender to anyone, not even to our Creator, the one who gives us meaning, the one who brings us purpose, the one who really has the best for us. We are like a toddler screaming, no, I want to do it my way. Anybody got toddlers? Yep. <sighs> now you know how God feels. <laughs> Just know when we look at God and go, no, 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 my way. That's yep. Get a toddler and you can, you know what I'm talking about. Get a toddler. That's right. If you need one, those of us with them will be glad to share. I can promise you. We can rent them out by the hour. <laughs> That's right. We'll pay you. That's right. 
We put ourselves in the ultimate position in our own lives. We put ourselves on the throne. We put ourselves in the place of God. And when we do, we're only concerned about one thing, ourselves, our happiness, our glory, our agenda. That's, it's us. And you can easily see the problem when, just in this room of all these people, if all of us put ourselves in that position, we're going to have a problem, aren't we? And then when you have, what, 8 billion people in the world that live like this, it's amazing we can even function at all as a society. We might want to be quick to throw Eve under the bus here for all this. But as I said, did you notice where Adam was? <laughs> he's just standing right there. He, you know, he's, he's just staying there. She took it, she gives it to him, and he's just like, sure, okay. Sounds good to me. We also learn this about ourselves here. When sin happens, you know what our first inclination is? Cover it up. Oh, man. Could you imagine being in that moment? They're naked. They don't even know it. They take this bite, and all of a sudden, that'd be kind of shocking, <laughs> you know? Kind of an interesting moment. In the South, we'd say they were naked, you know, naked. And they immediately went to hide, and then they had to get some fig leaves to cover themselves. And think about the silliness of this moment. It's just silly. God knew everything. Who made, he was the one who made them. He would, they think he wasn't going to notice this change. Oh, love your fall fashions there, Adam and Eve. Nice job. Love the fig, you know. But when we are in the midst of sin, we don't think correctly. That's what sin does. It messes with our minds. It, it really does screw up our thinking. Light is dark, left is right, right is wrong. I mean, it, you just think of, I mean, it just really does a number on us. And so we think we can cover it up. It affects our judgment. <laughs> we think we can keep ourselves hidden or hide from it. And you know what? We might be able to for a season, but it's always going to come out. And we continue as we look in our world today to be inundated with individuals removed from positions of leadership one after another, who are removed because of sin that they've tried to cover up and they thought it would never come out. But we see something else about this. It's not just that we try to cover it up because if we can't cover it up, if we can't keep it hidden, then what do we do? It's Adam's fault. It's his fault. It's her fault. You know, we pull out the finger, don't we? And we start pointing it as quick as we can. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames, uh, you know, and, and he also blames God in the process. Do you notice that? He's like, it's this woman and you gave her to me. That's a good, good excuse, right? No one is willing really to take responsibility. It's all about passing the buck, shifting the blame. We can make excuse after excuse for why it wasn't our fault or why we couldn't help ourselves. We justify it. We say things like, well, I'm young, or, you know, I was drunk when it happened, or we say anything we can except acknowledging the sin, and it, when it comes right out, we don't just try to cover it up. We try to hide from it. We stop hanging out with the people that might be the ones that help us see it. We stop coming to church. We avoid the pastor like the plague. And just like Adam and Eve, we hide from God. And we assume if we can hide it, we don't have to face it. And there's one other thing I think we see about us in this story. 
and this to me is the most tragic part of it, is that when presented this option to sin, to disobey, they took it. And I realized we would look at it and we would go, well, I wouldn't have made that decision. Yes, you would have. Let me just take that off the table. Every one of you in the exact same position would have done exactly the same thing. And what this shows is our willingness to sacrifice the eternal for the temporary. We're willing to sacrifice life for the fleeting pleasures of this world. To sacrifice a right relationship with God for the shiny object right in front of us. And man, we'd love to think we're more sophisticated than that, wouldn't we? But in our most honest moments, can't we just look at that and go, no, that's me. That's me. That's me. So this story shows us a lot about sin. It shows us a lot about ourselves. But I don't want to end there because that's a really depressing sermon. Because this also shows us some amazing things about God. I don't know if you saw this. But after they'd sinned, after they tried to hide and cover it up, God shows up again. And even then, in that moment, that just sit right there for a moment. God shows up again. Let's don't think that God was like ignorant and he's like unaware. It's like playing hide and seek with your toddler, you know? You see him sitting, you know, they've got a blanket on on top of them on the couch, and you know that lump wasn't there before. And a parent comes in, you know where they are. And then you start saying things like, oh, where are you? I mean, don't you think this is kind of like what God is doing? He's not ignorant. He's not like, oh, man, where'd they run off to? He knew. He knew what they had done. And yet he still showed up. That's a challenge for us in so many ways, because some of us, when we have people that sin against us, we're willing to go, I'm done with you. Sometimes that's necessary. Sometimes it's not. God shows up. He asks the question, where are you? Where are you? Seeking them out. Man, I love a God that seeks us out. What do you think? That's an amazing thing. And in, in these words, in these words of God coming into the garden and saying, where are you? You know what we see? We see grace. We see a God of grace. He could have come down in anger over what they have done. He could have come in and not said a word and just wiped them out. But he comes into the garden and he says, where are you? He already knew and he came anyway. Look at the amazing grace of God. But you know what it also shows us about God? It also shows us the seriousness at which God approaches sin. As we look at the big picture, we understand that God is a holy God and sin had to be dealt with. God had warned them of the consequences and God follows through. In Genesis 3, 21, he shows he doesn't leave it to us to take care of it. Even with Adam and Eve, listen to this. It says, God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and God clothed them. Their greatest need in that moment he took care of. Isn't that amazing? But he had to kill an animal for them to cover them up. There was a seriousness there. And in this, we also see not just the seriousness of sin, but also God's plan to restore everything, that God had a plan. It begins to unfold. Paradise was lost. The relationship with God was changed forever. Our relationship with one another strained. 
Physical work was going to get difficult, and I think it's important to know work was not a result of the fall. Work was already taking place. It's just, it's going to get a lot more difficult. Childbirth, sorry ladies, before epidurals, very painful. I've been told, never done it, but I've seen it. Very painful. God bless my wife for three children without epidurals. It's incredible. Cut off from God. Expelled from the garden. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? Why would God do this? This to me almost, we can, we can misunderstand what God was doing. Because we can almost say, well, there's that angry God. He's so mad at them. And he's, get out of my garden. Get out of here. You've screwed it all up. You worthless piece of trash. But as we continue through the big story, you know what we're going to find is that is not God. That's our interpretation of an angry God that really doesn't exist. Because as, why did God do it? Because his very good creation was no longer very good. And a part of the garden, when you read the story, in that garden, there wasn't just the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. There was also a tree of life. And God, in his great love for us, did not want us to have the opportunity to stay in this position, in a broken state. And the most loving thing he could do would say, I need to separate you from the thing that could cause you to live like this forever. So I'm going to move you out and get you away because I love you. Because God's purpose, his desire is never to leave us in this broken state. He is a God who heals. He is a God who breaks bondages. He is a God that brings life. And the most unloving thing God could have done would just be like, fine, stay like that forever. Again, toddlers are making the sermon today for some reason. It's like having that toddler who you're potty training. And they're doing good, but man, they still have accidents, and they are gross. I mean, they're disgusting. They drop a number two, and it is terrible, and they've got real panties or underwear on, and oh, man, nobody wants to deal with that. As a parent, do you look at that toddler, that two- or three-year-old, and go, well, you know what? You pooped in your pants, so just live with it until you can change it yourself. You want to. (laughs) But you don't, do you? The most loving thing you do is remove that from them and clean them up. And I think that's what we see in God. Even in the beginning here, God does some amazing things. And we see his plan because in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, listen to how God responds in this moment. He said, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat the dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. At face value, you read this and you think, oh, well, you guys are going to hate snakes. Well, that's true. Not a good snake. But here in the third chapter of the very first book of the Bible, we see God laying out this plan, how he was going to deal with this huge problem of sin. Scholars, Bible scholars who study this, they call this the proto-evangelium. There's your nice dinner party word. The foreshadowing of the one, the offspring of the woman, that's Jesus. Right there in Genesis 3, that's Jesus. 
Her offspring is going to come and crush the serpent. Jesus would be the one by his death who would deal with all the problem of sin. He would take it on himself, offering himself as a sacrifice, not for his own sin, for our sin. And even though humanity screwed it all up, God stepped in and said, don't worry, I got this. I'll make it good again. What's interesting to me about Genesis 3 is that isn't the, you know, it's not the story of how sin came into the world. Let's don't miss that and think, oh, this is all about sin. Nope. The serpent was already there. Chew on that a little bit. And I know today's message is a challenging one because it's not a feel-good message and you walk out and go, whoo, I feel so uplifted. But it is critical for us to understand because we've got seven more weeks of the big story to go through. And this is critical. So next week when we talk about the covenant that God makes with people, why? Why would God do this? Why is it so important for God to pick Abraham and do what he's doing there? And then what's, what's this about the law with Moses? And then what happens with the people of Israel when, when they end up in exile and there's prophets and then Jesus comes on the scene? None of that makes sense unless we wrap our minds around this idea of a God that's creating and bringing order from chaos and then chaos enters that world again in sin. And it's significant because this story is the story of God pursuing us, his creation. And as much as we don't want to talk about sin and we don't want to deal with this, it's critical for us to understanding. This, was, this is part of God's doing. It's helping us understand how amazing God is. You see, when God removed Adam and Eve from the garden... He stepped in to do what needed to be done because what we have to understand about sin is that sin, the remedy for sin is not an apology, it's atonement. And God's goal in this story is not condemnation, but restoration. And that is critical. So what about you in your life? <laughs> we all have sin. We're trying to deal with sin. What are you doing with it? Running from it, hiding from it, blaming someone else? You see, I think the worst thing we can do is try to act like it doesn't exist because there's freedom and healing that comes when we acknowledge this is where I am, this is who I am. In fact, James 5 in the New Testament says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you might be healed. That's part of what we need so healing can occur. So creation was good. Rebellion and sin marred it. Our relationship with God was wrecked. Our union with God destroyed, but even then, God gives us a glimpse of what's to come. But no one could even begin to fathom what God had in mind, what he had in mind to bring this healing and restoration. So come next week as we move forward in the big picture to see how God continues to move and interact on your behalf. Let's pray.